So in light of the resurrection, uh, the early church fathers coined a new phrase to describe Sunday, and that phrase was the eighth day. That's what, how they began to speak of, of Sundays. They marked it as the eighth day. Now, this wasn't so much about reordering the calendar as it was trying to, with their language, sort of reframe, uh, reorder, uh, reorient everything, beginning with worship uh, around this radical fundamental shift of resurrection. So let me give you some kind of the logic behind that. So creation was completed in six days. That's Sunday through Friday. And God rested on the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. But at the resurrection, he establishes something new. So the seventh day, the Sabbath, Saturday, that completes the first creation. But the eighth day begins the new creation. See how that works? And that's the era that you and I now inhabit. Uh, the scriptures speak of it in, in ways such as this. We're new creations in Christ, right? That's the new. Or Christ saying, behold, I'm making all things new. So we're eighth day creatures who stand at the beginning of a new world. So this notion, it's more than a notion, but you know what I mean. This completely redefines what is important, what's essential, and what's true. And the eighth day is all about the new. So Jesus is constantly, I find, reminding us of this. So when he came back to life, we were resurrected into a completely new life with God, this new level of access, unprecedented intimacy, unprecedented. So we're no longer bound by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's all changed. So resurrection is this entirely new way of sort of interacting with and encountering the world. Our lives are they're just, again, radically reoriented and, and, and recalibrated. And while it's tempting to think this way, I don't, resurrection life is not about some sort of uh, alternative reality, right? It's actually primary. It's actually what's really real. It's actually what's really true. That's resurrection. That's new life. But okay, that's sort of in the realm, in some ways, of uh, theory or, or talk, I would say. Uh, what does eighth day look like? Uh, what's a day in the life of, uh, of a disciple on the eighth day look like? And that's why I want to speak of one of our earliest examples, which is Road to Emmaus. Uh, true confessions. I love many of the gospel stories, particularly in Luke, but this might be my favorite. Uh, I love it. So there's my confession before you, before we even begin. Um, there is something about this story. Uh, I find there's a real palpable comedy to it. Uh, I think it is one of the more ironic stories in the, in the Gospels, which is saying a lot because the Gospels are often incredibly ironic. But even with the weight of is being discussed here, uh, I, there's, there's sort of an equal measure of heft and humor in a story like this. So for me, it's really endearing. Um, it's a really beloved story. And I don't think I'm totally alone in that. So... Uh, at the story's beginning, we find these two disciples, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple, who some think was perhaps his wife, but we don't know. And they're traveling along on that very day, meaning, again, day of the empty tomb. This is the exact day where, where Jesus was discovered to be missing, if you will. So this, this is the eighth day. We're on the eighth day. They're talking uh, about what has happened in Jerusalem and the tone of their talk is, it's very intense. Uh, that doesn't really come through in the translation, but it's pretty charged. And imagine how raw things still are as they're mulling over 
the news of Jesus's trial and execution. Again, this is all Holy Week. This happened within one week. A lot has gone on. And they're traveling back home. They've made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they're making their way back to Emmaus, which is their hometown. Um, I can only imagine their level of, of incredulity as they're sort of mulling over the events of the week. Think of the triumphal entry to now. That's an incredible amount of stuff that's happened in a week. It must have been surreal, certainly uh, traumatic to a degree, horrific, very disorienting. Um, and I have to wonder if they're just sitting there going, did that really happen? All that really happened. So as they're deliberating in this very intense discussion, a stranger came up or drew near, it says. And literally, this is like someone sort of catching it from behind as they're walking along. We probably assume this is a fellow pilgrim. Again, people are making their way back home. This is what happens after these feast days, after Passover. Now we know this is Jesus, okay? Uh, he's now clothed with his resurrection body, which would look a bit different than before. Same kind that we will have someday, but they don't recognize it, which is quite interesting. Until we read what the text says, and the text says this, they were kept from recognizing him or restrained or hindered, however you want to render that. But here's how you need to hear that in no uncertain terms. Jesus prevented them from recognizing him. And it's actually quite... Um, a forceful, strong word here, uh, same word is used of God in Rev Revelation 7, 1, when he speaks of restraining or holding back the full wind. So it's a really powerful word. Um, just think of the uh, divine strength required to restrain and conceal uh, God's full glory and his full suffering of the resurrected Christ. Were it not restrained, it probably would overwhelm uh, these two folks. But this is God hiding in plain sight. God hiding in plain sight. Why that is, I think, becomes clear later on. So the stranger comes up, and again, this is part of the humor of this passage. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> what are you discussing? Uh, you know, and they said, you know, what, what's happened in Jerusalem these past few days? That's as we're talking about. And the stranger, oh, what things? Now, at this point, <laughs> at this point, they stop cold and they stand still. And the picture you need to have of them is they're very downcast, they're very dejected, they're very caught up in their grief and the intensity of all that has happened. Uh, disappoint, disappointed, certainly confused as to what has happened. That is the picture that Luke kind of paints here. But they're absolutely, as you can understand, they're dumbfounded that this stranger doesn't know what's happened this past week. So there's this, this sense of incredulity. Have you not heard? I mean, they're shocked at this person's ignorance. Where have you been? How can you not know what has happened in Jerusalem at Passover this year? Let me give you an example. Imagine being in New York City um, the week after 9-11 happens, and you're walking down the street, and a stranger asks, hey, what are you guys talking about? I mean, we're just, we're, we're talking about the towers falling and terrorism and all this, and the person says, Oh, what do you mean, what things? And you would be dumbstruck by this. So they're incredulous, understandably so. And here's how they answer the stranger's question. They kind of give this rambling summary of the events of Holy Week in this story. And they recount it in sort of a random, uh, kind of a disjointed way. It's not a particularly cogent reply. It's kind of stream of consciousness. But I think that's sort of consistent with how someone might act when they're in a state of shock or profound disorientation or confusion. It makes sense. Uh, 
And in their summation, they allude to someone named the prophet Jesus. Okay, again, ironic, perhaps a little funny. Uh, Jesus, in this case, a mistaken identity, which plagued him pre-resurrection. Well, here it is again, right? Now, prophecy, certain part of Jesus's ministry, right, but he fulfilled other divine offices too. Jesus was prophet. Jesus was priest. Jesus was king. And they speak of the crux of their hopes. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That was their hope. So there is a tremendous disappointment here, tremendous, at how things have gone down. You need to hear it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, I mean, their hopes died too. When he died, their hopes died with him. So this is, this is a very weighty and profoundly sad thing that they're saying. This Jesus the prophet, he did not lead the Jews into this new era of freedom. Didn't happen. He didn't redeem Israel. And they had so hoped for this. But instead, he had died along all these other hopeful messiahs. Of course, what they don't know, Again, ironic, Jesus is going to do a lot more than redeem Israel. He's going to redeem Jew, Gentile, the entire cosmos, the world. Oh, and by the way, he's going to defeat sin and death and the devil in the process. So interestingly, they don't blame the Romans for Jesus' death, even though Pilate is culpable if you take his mention in our creeds uh, seriously. They place the blame on the Jewish leadership. Notice the language, our chief priests and rulers uh, delivered him up to be crucified. So they're partly right, but not fully. But I find that an interesting detail. Um, and adding to the sort of cognitive dissonance in their souls that they're experiencing, now they've heard these reports that there's an empty tomb, okay, from some of the women disciples. So they caught wind of this, but rather that news convincing them, which it did not, uh, their testimony just sort of perplexes them and astonishes them. So they're stymied by it. They don't know what to think. What happened to Jesus's body? They don't really know. Uh, all they know is there's an empty tomb and a missing Jesus. Again, if you're reading this as one of Luke's original audience, the irony is just at its high pitch right now because Jesus is right there. <laughs> and they're talking about how they don't know where Jesus is. So this is kind of like good old-fashioned sketch comedy. It's kind of funny, if you will. Finally, the, uh, uh, the act that Jesus is playing with drops a little bit. And he says, how slow or how dull you are. Uh, this is a rebuke. There's just no way around it. Uh, this is where Jesus um, is, is just very straightforward. Um, their traveling companion does not hold back at all in the least. So this is a really intense emotional response. We can't hear it any other way. It's very intense. And presumably he's speaking over, I think over his disappointment over their blindness of heart. Okay. No, they don't get it. Suffering was necessary for glory to follow. Jesus must be so tired of having to say this. And he does reiterate this again and again and again. For whatever reason, most first century Jews did not anticipate a suffering Messiah. They didn't anticipate it. And yet Israel could not have been redeemed without the shed blood of Jesus. But suffering had to happen. It was prophesied. That was the only way 
excuse me, redemption was going to come. So suffering, salvation, glory, praise and honor, they're bound together. I, you can't separate them. And if you paid attention to Reed's sermon last week on 1 Peter 1, I suspect you caught that theme. The Old Testament spoke of it. Jesus spoke of it. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then in order to enter into his glory? So he rebukes them, essentially saying, folks, why so slow? It's kind of like a divine duh, if you will. So this stranger spells it out for them in long form, explaining uh, Moses and the prophets. This is verse 27 or so. And that's a real traditional phrase uh, um, a devout Jew would know. It's a short form way of saying the entire Old Testament. When you say Moses and the prophets, you mean the entire Old Testament. So I suspect this catechesis took up their entire walk. <laughs> They've got seven miles. It's a long walk, lots of time, two to three hours at a good clip. It took time to explain to them and expound on how this Messiah fulfills the Old Testament. It took time. Notice the four spiritual laws ain't going to cut it, folks. We need the richness of the entire uh, great salvation story here. No spiritual shortcuts. So this stranger spells it out. Now, can you imagine that conversation? Oh, this is where I wish uh, the gospel writers would tell us more. Like, oh, please tell me more. Uh, here's the one thing I can say that probably the best sermon of teaching these guys had ever heard. I don't know what Jesus spoke to them of. I'm sure probably pulled on Isaiah 52 and 53, suffering servant. Maybe you got into Daniel 7. I, I don't know. But... Uh, goes through the entirety of scripture and connects both testaments, new and old covenants. So it's beautiful. And they finally arrive in Emmaus at some point. It's getting late. Uh, this wise stranger acts, pretends, as if he's going further. Um, now, there's an interesting thing here. Uh, it's more difficult to travel at dark, obviously, unlit paths. You know, modern technology here tended to be more dangerous to travel at night. You had robbers, you had wild animals. Uh, Better to call it a day at this point. And so these two disciples, they strongly urge, kind of insist uh, that the stranger stay. And, that, and they probably retire to one of their homes to do this. And the stranger does. So they go and stay, remains with them. And again, they still don't know who he is. Now imagine yourself one of Luke's original readers at this point. Good grief. You have to be bursting at the seams here. Guys, it's Jesus. That's who it is. You know, cue the face palm. That's what's going on. So the traveling companions, they enter the house, uh, they prepare for dinner, but something strange or stranger happens. The stranger begins to act as host. Very odd, very abnormal. Normally like the father or the master of the house, they're the one that does the hosting for the guests. They're the ones that presides over the meal. I don't know why Luke doesn't comment on this oddity there's no reaction from the disciples that we know of, but it's a weird, weird, highly unusual role reversal. So that's odd. But the stranger does something else that triggers their memory. He utters some reminiscent words and he performs some familiar gestures. This is verses 30, 31. So he takes bread, blesses the bread, breaks the bread, and gives the bread. And this liturgical pattern, because that is what it is, it ignites their hearts. Something happens. Probably the moment they remembered, my guess is the feeding of the 5,000. 
when Jesus enacted those same words and, and gestures. The stronger echo for us is probably the Last Supper, right? And it is the fourfold action that we do every week in the Eucharist. We take bread, bless bread, break bread, give bread. It's called the fourfold action. And here's the, here's the phrase in the scripture. He was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Sacramentalists among you rejoice. And their eyes were open, open and they finally recognized him. Okay? Something clicks. And again, the original audience at this point is coming out of their seats saying, oh my gosh, it's about time. You guys were killing me. The big, real ha big reveal happens and they get it. There's an aha. And then, poof, Jesus disappears. <laughs> what is going on? This is nutty. Disciples react. Were not our hearts burning within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened the scriptures to us? I knew there was something about it. I just knew it. So as Jesus opened to them the scriptures, their eyes are opened. There's a correlation there. That's intended. That's repetition of the same word. It's meant, we're meant to catch that. So Jesus fanned the fire of the Holy Spirit inside them into flame. Folks, this is a language of revelation. That just is what it is. He revealed a great salvation story to them in the scriptures, and he revealed his place in it as the crucified, now resurrected Christ. Now, all this happens. It's weird. It is what it is. And even though it's evening, even though it's dinner time and time to retire for the night, unsafe to travel, all those reasons, despite all that, once Jesus reveals himself, guess what they do? They go straight back to Jerusalem, seven miles uh, immediately. Those prior concerns of, uh, you know, safety and lateness went out the window. And when they find the disciples back in Jerusalem, they're greeted by the news that Jesus also appeared to Peter. God one step ahead of us, as usual, making the resurrection rounds. I love this. Peter, you've seen the Lord too? How is that physically possible? This is Jesus present among all his people, all his disciples, simultaneously even. So it's wonderful theology there. I love that. And they reiterate again to the 11 how Jesus was recognized. And I'm quoting it here from verse 35. How Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Okay? Hitting that point again. Now, the interesting thing, this is actually a deeper level of recognition than what we saw back in 41. Different word here to show for it. Uh, it's a deeper knowing. Something sank in in that seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem. We don't know what. We don't know what changed. Something shifted. They have a fuller, uh, deeper understanding than they had a few hours before. It doesn't mean they're slow on the uptake. I don't know. Did it just take some time to absorb and process what had happened? I don't know. But when they arrive at Jerusalem, they have a deeper understanding of Jesus and what had happened. Now observe with me. I love this. This is so wonderful. Jesus teaches in the word, scripture. He teaches in the word. And then their eyes are unveiled and opened more fully. Only after he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives the bread. Folks, that's good old ministry of word and sacrament. I mean, there it is. That's the divine cycle. That's the worship that we partake of every Sunday, which we will in a few moments, which is going on right here. It's all right here in this passage. I, for me, that's a big wow. Uh, I love that. Our weekly worship 
it is definitely meant to open our eyes to God and to his great salvation story and the resurrected Jesus. Um, one of the Eastern fathers, Ephraim the Syrian, puts it a little more succinctly than I do. Broken bread is the key to open eyes. Broken bread, key to open eyes. So, God alone obviously has the power to reveal himself to us. It's beyond our capability. We can't, uh, we can't make ourselves see God. He has to reveal himself to us. We see that really clearly in the story. It's just, it's right here. It's impossible to miss. But why does Jesus travel incognito here? Why does he do that? Why did he prevent Cleopas and the other disciple from seeing him? Is God just toying with them, right? Just messing with them? Or is Jesus being intentionally playful to draw them out for their own good, I might add? You can probably tell where I'm headed with this. I don't think God is above playing hide and seek with us in order to kindle and stoke our hearts into full flame. Not at all. The Lord might just play cat and mouse with us in order to increase our hunger for him to call it out. So this is God beckoning us onward, I think, right? Uh, for those of you Narnia fam, fans, um, remember that line that Aslan says in the last battle, further up and further in. Further up and further in. It's a beckon to come forward, keep following, keep following. This divine chase, God playfully inciting us to actually pursue him, I think is pure brilliance and also utter kindness on God's part. Discipleship at its finest and more, most unorthodox. If I'm Cleopas, the other disciple at the end of the story, I'm wondering, what in the world is this Jesus going to do next? I haven't a clue. And after the resurrection, no one can predict Jesus' next move. This was true before resurrection, but it is true in spades after the resurrection. Two things I want to highlight, and we'll close here, uh, that I want to focus on. One is, is literally God's playfulness. Now, this apparent game of cat and mouse, hide and seek, traveling incognito, a hiding Jesus, however you want to think about it. The first question from, that I have for you is, how does that sit with you thinking about it this way? And that's, that's a, that's a, I don't know if that's scandalous, but it's not often how I think of the Lord. God being winsome or humorous, think of that, that he would use in the story heft and humor equally. And yet, I think he does. I'm going to let Emily Dickinson do some heavy lifting here for me. <laughs> She's going to make my job a lot easier. I'm going to quote a brief part of one of her poems, brilliant poem. Here's what she says. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Let me read that again, because I want you to catch this. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. For me, this poem kind of sums up Jesus' use of parables in his ministry. It's brilliant. I think perhaps we could view this game that God is playing here, that this sense of restraint, holding back, his hiding in plain sight, all that. I think we can view it as a grace, as a matter of divine pacing. 
as to how and when he reveals himself. Think of it this way. It's a bit like a parent, a wise parent, uh, giving his or her children what they need when they need it, <laughs> right? Pacing, mindful of our limited capacity and our ability to take things in. The truth must dazzle gradually, lest every man be blind, okay? Augustine kind of helps me build on this or play off this a little bit. Here's what he thought of this passage. He thought the disciples' recognition of Jesus was deferred because they, quote, needed more catechesis teaching. In other words, they, they weren't prepared yet. They weren't ready yet. Cleopas and the other disciples saw Jesus, but they didn't recognize him. Okay, right, right, right. Here's God waiting to reveal himself to us until we're ready to see, in a key phrase, until we're ready to receive him. Waiting. So here's God waiting on us, instructing us, drawing us out. Notice how Jesus did that. Playfully, skillfully, right? Behind the scenes, God is preparing us to receive him. Not at all unlike hearing his word read, hearing his word preached before we come to his table to be fed by him. It's divine preparation, right? With the end goal being a fuller reception of the Lord a true understanding, a deeper knowing of the Lord. So that's the first piece, God's playfulness and the links he would go to reveal things to us and how he goes about that, very unorthodox, playfulness. Uh, final piece that I think I, I see here in this passage. It's our life as a pilgrimage home, and I mean the capital H home, okay? Uh, a journey. Okay, that journey towards home, journey towards heaven, journey towards the Lord, our lives being that pilgrimage, right? Of all the gospel writers, I think Luke reads the most like a mini travelogue. He loves to highlight this whole journey theme, journey motif. Uh, this story is a really good example of that. Here's why I think it's important or why it matters, because I, this is real life stuff, okay? We meet God as we're in the transit from here to there. We meet him in the in-between. We meet him between this life circumstance and that life circumstance. Uh, if I remember right, C.S. Lewis, I think it's his, I think it's Lewis, his conversion story, very undramatic. I mean, it basically happens on a train ride. And he describes it as, all I know is when I got on the train, I wasn't a Christian. And when I got off the train, I was. So it's not this grand, massive, ah, moment. It's very mundane. And so I think this story shows us that we meet God in the mundane and just the day-to-day -day stuff of life, which I don't know about you, but I am certainly caught up in the mundane now, given our current climate of things. So God meets us in the mundane, meets us in the journey during those moments that seem unimportant uh, or unglorious. And we don't want to miss him, right? We don't want to miss him. I, I, I was, um, I love this that lyric of John Lennon, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. You, heard, you guys heard that? I kind of think you could put the word Jesus in the word there for life and say Jesus is what happens when you're busy making other plans, right? We don't want to miss him. So just like in this story, uh, Rotomaeus, in our own life, Jesus is spurring us onward. Jesus is keeping us moving. Jesus is redirecting us as needed. Jesus is even rebuking us at times if we need it. So will God play cat and mouse with us to get us going in the right direction? Yeah, <laughs> I think he will. Will God play hide and seek with us uh, to get us moving if need be, or to slow us down if need be? He will, I think he will. 
we're all on this journey. So we're this people in motion. Our lives are aimed at something, home, capital H. There's a trajectory. We're going somewhere. We're not just wandering around. And our Lord Jesus is about keeping us moving in the right direction. For he knows the path marked out before all of us because he paved the way.